The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus withdrew toward the sea with his disciples. A large number of people followed him from Galilee and from Judea. Hearing what he was doing, a large number of people came to him also from Jerusalem, from Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from the neighborhood of Tyre and Sidon. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crush him. He had cured many, and as a result, those who had diseases were pressing upon him to touch him. And whenever unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. He warned them sternly not to make him known. The Gospel of the Lord. In both of our readings today, the first reading and the gospel, we have the movement of a significant number of people. Our first reading has King Saul and David and the soldiers returning from their victory over the Philistines and the people coming out, especially large numbers of women, from the surrounding cities to meet them and to celebrate them. And in our gospel reading, we have the Lord moving toward the sea, and we find out that a great crowd has begun to move with him. And from the surrounding areas, including from the borders of other nations, people are streaming toward where Jesus is going because they've heard of what he is doing. But they come not merely to celebrate, they come in their need. It's a remarkable incident, and we see this a number of times in St. Mark's Gospel. The crowds that follow Jesus don't simply come to acclaim him. There's something actually chilling about what we see in this sense. It's an overwhelming depiction of the neediness of the world. This great number of people turning out and pouring out of their buildings and being drawn to Jesus because they're desperate, because they're looking for something. The word of his healings has gone out, and the response is, I need to be healed too. It's such an overwhelming number, it actually puts the Lord physically at risk. He asks for a boat so that he isn't crushed by all of the need pressing in against him. It's a remarkable image we're left with, one physically small person in the middle of an ocean of need that keeps rolling forward. An overwhelming sea of woundedness, of pain, of neediness, and beyond what any individual can meet except for one. And it's this one. Any other man, any other person is going to be overwhelmed, in fact, crushed beneath the weight of the world's misery, the weight of the world's need. Note, this is not a matter of being destroyed by sin. It is simply a matter of this need that can't be met 
by any human source. And yet there is this one, the Lord, who is able to meet it and able to respond to it. This remarkable difference about Jesus. In our first reading, we have the hymns of thanksgiving because the people are saved from their enemies and they want to meet the one who rescued them and rejoice in him. And in our gospel reading, we have a deeper need for salvation and the desire not simply to celebrate the one who saves, but to draw near because that's where salvation is found. And we hear that as this is happening, even those oppressive spirits that can so easily master and dominate the human heart recognize the goodness of Jesus. Calling out, identifying him as the Son of God, and yet curiously we see the Lord tell them to shut up and be quiet. And one can puzzle over that at first, wondering why would the Lord say, don't proclaim me that way? But it's because evil always recognizes goodness as a threat. And so when the demons cry out, you are the son of God, they are also saying, you're the one who will destroy us. You're the one who will limit us. You are the one who will break our power and the implication, we don't want that. You are a threat to our hold and our mastery of the human heart. And so it is on the one hand a witness to the Lord, and yet on the other hand it is a counter witness. You're the one who's dangerous, dangerous to me in some way. And when we see this, we also recognize, though, that in the sin-fallen heart of man, there can be that tendency. As much as I need the Lord, as much as I want the Lord, I also don't want to change. I also don't want to give up, necessarily, those dark appetites which give me some false form of consolation. And so what happens? Even as grace draws near, I feel a bit threatened by it because as unhappy as I am with certain elements of my life, I'm also used to them. And I know how to navigate them in a certain way, and I can't imagine what it would be like not to have them anymore. And it's right here where the Lord provokes all of these reactions that we have another parallel with our first reading, and that is in the tragic figure of Saul, the first king of Israel. And I want to stress that, because sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking David is the original king of Israel, and he's not. He's the second guy. The original king, called and chosen by God, is Saul. And so here it is, Saul the king has presided over a victory. The victory is won by David, who slays Goliath, rallies the army, the army emerges victorious, but the point of the matter is the danger has passed. The risk has fled. And the victory that the king and the nation sought is in their hand. And so note what happens. He's moving forward and he is literally the victorious king. It doesn't matter whether he was the one who killed the enemy or not. He was the one who was in charge. 
And so he comes forward and the people come out and we even hear they come to meet him, not David. They come to greet the king, streaming from all of these locations, singing his praises. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And it's the song of praise that troubles the afflicted heart of Saul. What a remarkable moment this really is, and what a marvelously accurate depiction of the human heart that sacred scripture gives us this day. Because isn't it often the case that when we feel insecure about ourselves, and let's be honest, it's a common thing for men and women to be jealous of their status concerned about their position, wondering. We're threatened by so many things. And we see this play out in our families, in our places of work, in our schools, in our parishes. The competition and the jealousy for position, for status, for affection. And what do we see here? David is praised to a greater degree than Saul, who is also praised and Saul is incapable of receiving the praise because somebody's getting more. This is not unique to kings. This is all too common in the world, and it's been tragically and terribly common from the beginning. And here we see now the advancement in the tragic fall of Saul. We already heard that the Lord is rejecting him and rejecting him because of his disobedience, because of the arrogance of his heart that said, I will decide how I serve the Lord. And the great difference between David and Saul is exactly on that point where David, despite his imperfections, and as we move through the weekday readings over the coming weeks, we will run into the imperfections and the failures of David. And yet his preoccupation is to at least try and do not simply what God asks, but to do it in the way God asks. Note the difference. Note the difference, this tendency to decide for oneself as if I am capable of judging how the Lord wants me to serve him. And this other desire to submit and surrender and to say, how do you want me to serve you, Lord? And this fundamental disposition is what creates a certain closeness and friendship with the Lord or what distances us from him. And so it is that the Lord, in rejecting Saul, named his disobedience. And what do we see? Saul, when he, reject, when he was rejected, never apologized, never repented, never said, how can I fix this? The word of rejection was pronounced, and terribly and tragically, he just assumed that's the way it would be. The Lord never pronounces a word of rejection if it's not an invitation to do something different. Saul doesn't. 
Saul clings to what he has and he's going to hold on to it, even though it's not his in the first place. And that's what we see here. Since that moment Saul has felt threatened, he feels his rule slipping out of his hands. He feels his popularity being replaced. And terribly, it's all in his head right now. It's amazing what we do to ourselves when we live too much in our heads. When our insecurities begin speaking to us and whispering to us. No one is criticizing him here. The women are praising him. It's simply that they praise David more today. But he can't receive the praise. He can't even rejoice in the victory and that his own life has been saved because he's worried about his status. He's worried about being replaced. He's worried about losing his position and losing his authority. And he becomes so jealous of the good one who got him the victory that now he wants to eliminate him. And this, too, in bolder colors, is something that we know all too well from our own experience of life. That tendency that can afflict any one of us at any time of wanting to tear somebody down because they've gotten a little ahead of me. Of wanting to criticize someone who has a good reputation simply because it's not me receiving the praise that desire to not just eliminate, but to reduce the competition. Oftentimes when nothing has been done against us, except that for some reason our fragile egos are, are wounded. And so it is now that Saul becomes jealous of this young one. And in that jealousy decides that he will eliminate him. His figure will become more tragic as we go forward, as we consider the tortured relationship between David and the family of Saul, whose son Jonathan is actually a friend of David. Um, and yet here we see the importance of what Christ shows us in the gospel. When wickedness masters the heart, goodness could stand right next to it and that heart is unable to recognize it, unable to receive it, because it sees that goodness as a threat to itself. Saul is aware of his unfaithfulness, and so he's threatened by David's faithfulness. Saul is aware of his imperfection in the eyes of God, and so he is threatened by the fact that David is so obviously closer and much more confident in the Lord than he is. And just like Cain's solution so many years earlier was to eliminate the competition in murdering his brother Abel, so now Saul does what kings have always done. It is best if I remove the competition before he gets too powerful. But as we said, this is not unique to kings. This is a woundedness that plays itself out in our world on a daily basis. And it's something that we all must struggle with. But in the end, it is very good that we can reflect on these things here, where Jesus Christ, who comes to precisely free us 
from that proud and jealous and insecure spirit which so easily overwhelms us is going to be here. And while we are not here in great numbers, in fact, our numbers are relatively small, any single one of us might feel himself or herself overwhelmed by the needs within our own lives and our own households. Any single one of us might feel ourselves crushed beneath the weight of our need for healing and mercy and goodness, or just finding ourselves lost and struggling with impulses that aren't any good for us but seem to master us all too easily. And yet the Lord is here, and he doesn't come as a threat. He comes as the king who has already been victorious and who remains victorious. How wonderful that is. And from this altar, that king will step down, and we will come forward to meet him. Some of us with hymns of praise in our heart as the women who came forward to celebrate Saul and David, and some of us coming forward as part of that great tidal wave of the need of the world. But it's the same Lord. And whether we come as part of that ocean of the world's need, or whether we come as those who simply want to celebrate the victorious king, he is equally here for every single one of us. The size of my need doesn't matter. The quality of my song of praise, this perfection, doesn't matter. What matters is that we come to him because he is here. And he is the one who can meet every one of our needs. He is the one who is pleased to receive whatever thanksgiving we offer him. But he is here. And when he is here, salvation is here. And victory is here. And we are saved. And what a great gift indeed that is. Amen.